Okay. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in a tongue is not speaking to people, but to God, since no, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement and consolation. The person who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or the harp be recognised? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, Unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in a tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you may well, for you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to these people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in tongues, then, is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed and as a result he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, there are to be only two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. 
Two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets since God is not a God of disorder but of peace. All in all, the churches of the saints, the women, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. Thanks, Beck. Good evening, evening church. Good to be with you. Uh, my name is James, part of the team here, and we're looking at this chapter together. Clearly, there's some uh, confronting and stuff towards the end of the chapter, which feels pretty unusual. Um, let me assure you, I don't think the scope and applicability of it is as blunt as it sounds when we first read it. Um, I don't think it's about the ability of women or anything like that. We will come to that. Uh, we will address that part a bit later. So rest assured, um, we'll, uh, we'll go through that together. But as we commence, uh, I want to ask you a question. How do you walk into church? How do you walk into church? I came across this book a while ago, How to Walk Into Church. I thought Christian publishers will publish just about anything these days. Um, I, I look at those people, I think, I've got, I've got that bit, right, left, right, left, uh, through the door. Uh, I think I've got that bit. Uh, but as I read it, I could see that what the author was saying was really helpful. The mindset that we have when we come into church says a lot about the way we think about church, what church is for, what I'm doing at church, why I'm coming. Uh, so what is your mindset when you come into church? Well, 1 Corinthians 14 addresses that question directly. We've been looking at this unit, 12 to 14, spiritual gifts, last week love. In chapter 14, Paul is applying the principle of love directly to when the church gathers, how we think about uh, what happens when we get together. Uh, it's, it's all about our mindset when we come to church. I think verse 26 is a good summary of, of his point. Verse 26, he says, What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything, everything is to be done for building up. So when you come to church, everything is about building one another up in, in strengthening their faith, in Christian maturity, in godliness. Uh, that is what the principle of love looks like when we come to meet together in church. So there's two headings which will guide us because if he fleshes out this idea in quite a lot of detail, uh, particularly as it relates to speaking in tongues and prophecy. And we'll see these two headings will guide us through the chapter. Build one another up with intelligible words. And second, build one another up 
with orderly gatherings. The first heading kind of relates to verses 1 to 25, and then the second heading 26 to the end. So the first heading, build one another up with intelligible words. Uh, his point in verses 1 to 25 is actually really straightforward to follow. He, his point is that prophecy is better than tongues because it's intelligible. People can understand what's being said. So let's have a think for a few moments about what these two things are and uh, what Paul says about them. Speaking in tongues first. Uh, it's a bit of a mystery in some respects to, to know precisely what speaking in tongues is, particularly uh, from this chapter. We do get a good sense from verse 2. Uh, Paul says, the person who speaks in a tongue, and you might also, you could also translate that language, the person who speaks in a tongue is not speaking to people but to God. Since no one understands him, he speaks in mysteries, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. So what do we know about tongues? It's, it's when someone vocalises sounds and, and words, uh, but it's an unknown language. It's not understood by people. Uh, so it could be a real human language. For example, someone coming here tonight and speaking Swahili and, and no one understanding them. Remember in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came down on the first disciples, they began speaking about Jesus in different languages. Uh, the word tongues was used then as well. So it could be like a real human language, but people don't understand it. But God gives them, gives people the ability to, to speak in another language. It could also be some kind of angelic language, which is not, not a known human language, but uh, sounds which um, you know, have meaning uh, to God, but not understood by uh, ordinary people. So it could be either of those things, could be a bit of both. Uh, it's not clear from this passage which one Paul's talking about, I don't think. Um, the main thing is that it's language that's not understood by other people. Uh, and the effect of that is that uh, it can alienate people, uh, including unbelievers. So when we get to that section in verse 20 to 25 and there's that quote from the Old Testament, that's actually a quote about judgment, how God will, in, in his judgment against human sin, he will a time will come where people will be speaking about God in foreign languages and they won't be able to understand anything. And then we get to verse 23 and Paul says, if people come into church, visitors come to church and see everyone speaking in tongues that don't make sense, they'll think you're crazy. And we can picture that scene. Um, it's not so good to speak in tongues uh, when people don't understand what you're saying. And so for that reason, Paul is really clear. Without interpretation without someone to explain and translate, tongues is not helpful. It's not helpful. It's not good for building anyone up because people don't understand what you're saying. That's, that's a pretty simple argument. And he compares tongues with prophecy. So this is a different spiritual gift. Have a look at verse 3. Verse three, 2 and 3 are kind of a bit like his summary of everything he's going to say. He says, on the other hand... The person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement and consolation. Um, so prophecy is directed at people for their strengthening, encouragement and consolation. It's something they can understand. Um, it's, um, it's some kind of spirit-prompted 
uh, insight or revelation. Again, like tongues, it's a bit hard to, to know exactly what's in view, but it might be a, a time where someone gets some spontaneous insight given to them by God about someone or a specific situation and, and then can speak to that, that person or that situation. Uh, that has a, a kind of a real supernatural feel to it. But it could also be the kind of thing that happens all the time where we read and understand God's Word and then we speak and apply it to people's lives. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know, it could be quite a broad definition. Prophecy, unlike tongues, is something that uh, rather than alienating, alienating unbelievers, it might convict them. A visitor comes to church, hears the Bible being explained, they can understand it, they might be convicted by it. The, the crucial thing with prophecy is that it's not infallible. Uh, so we might hear the word prophecy and our mind might go back to Old Testament prophecy like Isaiah and we think, well, do we have that power now? Well, I think the answer is no. A prophecy now is something that needs to be weighed up. That comes up in the second half of the chapter. It needs to be evaluated. And I think the way that happens is it gets evaluated against Scripture um, and the Apostles' teaching. Um, so I think we probably would benefit from removing some of the mystery associated with prophecy, even though it feels like a really special word. I think in large parts it's the kind of thing that the Spirit enables many of us, all of us, to be involved in. As we receive God's Word in the Gospel and in the Bible, we digest it and speak it to others. Uh, in a sense, we're all engaged in prophecy. Um, now, for what it's worth... I think both of these gifts still exist in our time. Uh, maybe uh, we, we're not used to identifying them. Maybe we don't experience it in the same measure as they did in Corinth. Uh, but I think they still exist. But Paul's point uh, is not so much about, you know, exactly what it looks like. and um, it's, it's about how we use these gifts. And his big point is, is, is really clear. Prophecy is better than tongues because it can be understood. It's intelligible. You can build someone up with your words in a way that you can't if you're speaking in tongues and those tongues aren't interpreted. Um, and he says this from the outset. Verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Um, verse 39. My brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy... And do not forbid speaking in tongues. He says prophecy uh, is better than tongues. Use intelligible words to build one another up. Let's just uh, take stock and just think of a few implications from this first point for us uh, and our gatherings. Um, now clearly, uh, when you read this chapter, the gatherings in Corinth might have looked a bit different to ours. Our formal gathering here... Um, we might not all be talking over the top of one another. We don't have people spontaneously uh, speaking in tongues or putting a hand up and saying, I've got a new revelation. But there are some important principles. Uh, the main one is, is obvious. When we come together, do what will build one another up rather than what suits you. That was the, the way the Corinthians had gone wrong. Some, some of them were really keen on speaking in tongues. They'd get together, they'd speak in tongues with no regard for how it impacted other people. 
maybe a bit like a, a child with a toy that's just consumed with their toy, not sharing it, not thinking about other people. No, no, when we come to church, love says we say and do and order ourselves around what will benefit other people. So that might mean thinking about where you sit. It might mean uh, involving others in your conversation uh, afterwards so that they can you know, feel a sense of belonging and, and benefit from what's being discussed. When we sing, we sing for others. Um, it's not only a, a vertical thing between us and God, we sing to encourage others. Uh, it might, might mean listening attentively uh, for the sake of others so that other people aren't distracted by us or uh, whatever we're doing. And it might mean that if we listen well, we'll have something helpful to say to one another afterwards. So there's all kinds of ways we can be thinking about how to build up others when we come together. A second implication will feel a bit edgier. Um, We don't like the idea of different gifts being more or less important. In 1 Corinthians 12, we saw how there's the body and each part of the body is necessary, and that's 100% true. I'm in full agreement with that. Uh, But we do see in this chapter, Paul kind of unambiguously saying, no, pursue prophecy. That's a That's one of the really important gifts. Um, And so we need to take that on board. Um, I I know that amongst us we're all made differently, which is fantastic and beneficial. Some of us are more confident with words, reading and understanding the Bible and speaking to others. Some of us are less confident in that. We're much happier maybe in the kitchen or behind the sound desk. And that's a wonderful thing. The body is diverse. I'm I'm not... uh, I don't have any problems with that. But we do need to share Paul's zeal for everyone being involved in word ministry to one another. He says that. It's it's a priority for him. Uh, So I wonder if maybe one of the take-home points for you tonight is to pray that you would grow in this gift of prophecy and perhaps as well as praying, apply yourself to to learning from the Bible and thinking and growing in your ability to speak helpful words to one another. Um, Paul seems to say that that's really, really important. Uh, So that's the second implication. Pursue the gift slash ability of using words to build others up. All right, let's move on to the second point. So in verse 26, Paul said, prophecy is better than tongues. Then he goes on to say, look, love also means we will have ordered gatherings. It won't be chaotic. Uh, it'll be uh, well organised and, um, you know, lots of the, all the moving parts will work together in, in a helpful way. So back at verse 26, uh, you get the sense that the Corinthian gathering might have been a bit chaotic. Everyone coming with a, a hymn or a revelation or a teaching to say... And there's people speaking over the top of one another. Quite different to what we do in our gatherings. Maybe uh, there's a lesson in that, that uh, it's good for us to be hearing from more people. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I think at at the least, we want to recognise that what Paul's saying here doesn't only apply to our formal gathering, but it also applies to what we do afterwards in conversation, what we do in our midweek growth groups, 
I think they're the kinds of scenarios that Paul is addressing. Uh, and it's important to have order. Order. So look at verse 33. Paul says, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Verse 40. Everything is to be done decently and in order. Now that's the way we can build one another up and practice love. And again, like the first point, he applies it to tongues and prophecy. So verse 27 to 28, he says, speaking in tongues, look, if you're going to do it, uh, two or three at most, one at a time, uh, and if there's no interpreter, remain silent. He actually... In this section, he, there's three groups of people that are called to be silent. Uh, it's not only the women, which we'll come to, but it's those who have tongues but don't have an interpreter. They're told to be silent. Uh, that's verse 27 and 28. Verse 29, uh, he moves on to prophecy. And he says a very similar thing. He says two or three at most, uh, one at a time, and it must be evaluated. We were talking about that a moment ago. Someone shares something, it doesn't automatically uh, have authority. It needs to be weighed up by others, other people in the congregation, maybe other leaders who, who look at what's been said and measure it against the truth, the higher truth of Scripture that is infallible. Old Testament Scripture, in their case, um, maybe the Apostles' teaching, which was kind of had a, a scriptural authority in a way. Uh, needs to be weighed up and evaluated. And again, uh, if one prophet is sharing something and someone else gets up and says something, the first one's to be silent. So Paul's really deliberate about the way we organise our gatherings. Not chaos, not all, you know, trying to uh, have our say in, in a sort of a self-absorbed way. Now, order. Love looks like order. So let's just think about a few implications uh, of order in our gatherings. As I was alluding to earlier, one thing I've taken away is it's just a reminder that we really benefit when we hear from multiple people. I know that's not Paul's big point, but there's something valuable about hearing from mul- multiple people. So I love how we interviewed Danny. It was just brilliant. Uh, that's, that adds so much to our gathering, you know, rather than only uh, a sermon. When we hear it from other people... I love it. Um, so we, we've got to keep finding ways to do that. And I'm saying that to me. I'm saying that to the other leaders. But in your growth groups as well, if you're in a growth group or greenhouse, there's so much value from opening God's word and hearing from different people about what God's word says. So keep involving yourself in those kinds of uh, group settings. Uh, another implication maybe we need to keep remembering to listen well. Uh, here in church, here in, in, in your growth group, in church, maybe that means, you know, just re- really focusing in, not sending messages and chatting amongst ourselves. You know, that's, that's not outlawed, obviously, but uh, we don't want to be a distraction to people. Uh, we want to help them listen. Uh, and take turns speaking. Take turns speaking. I've, I, I must confess, I've been in growth groups in the past and other settings where um, it's very easy for people to speak over the top of one another. Maybe there was one or two people that dominate um, I think order, loving order says, um, you know, just exercise some self-restraint, let people have their say, listen, uh, rather than just speaking over the top of one another. So there's a few, I'm brainstorming here really, a few ways in which 
order might play out in, in our, when we come together. And then under this section as well, this same section, this is where we get the, the women are not to speak. This is it's really confronting and unusual, isn't it? Um, so I'm, we're going to spend some time thinking about that. As I said at the beginning, um, I think this is particularly speaking about what happens when prophecy is being weighed up. So that's the first thing to notice, the context. Um, verse 29, 30, 31, Paul's talking about weighing up prophecy still, or the way prophecy happens. And then 37, 38, 39, he's still talking about prophecy. So I think what Paul is speaking here especially is about the involvement of women in that leadership type function of weighing up prophecy. So I think that's the context. He can't be, he can't be prohibiting women from speaking all of the time because that would just not make sense. So earlier in 1 Corinthians, uh, in, in chapter 11, he's talking about the head covering thing. He says this, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. So he's already recognising that women are involved in the gathering making significant contributions. So I don't think Paul's got a problem with the ability of women uh, to contribute in the gatherings. Um, I don't think uh, he's, he's issuing a blanket ban at all. Far from it. I think he's particularly talking about weighing up prophecy. I... I also think when you look at it, he particularly has in mind husbands and wives. So if you look at verse 35, he says, If the women want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. One of the tricky parts of the New Testament is that the Greek word for women and wives is the same. And the word for men and husbands is the same. So uh, you've got to work hard at the context. Um, So I guess the the question we have about all of this is what do we do with it? Does this still apply to us? Um, That's that's the hard part. Um, We read stuff like this and we go, this feels really off and offensive. And can I say if you're feeling like that, I think that's normal. Um, I don't think... you need to sort of suppress that. It's normal um, because we want to wrestle with understanding it. Um, the, the easy route, the attractive route for us when we come to passages like this is to draw a line through it and think, well, that's from a different time. Uh, it just, it's irrelevant to us. Different culture. Um, I think there's a problem when we do that because the whole Bible is from a different culture. Every part of the Bible was written in a different culture to ours, uh, to, to specific people, specific situations. Um, and so we, we can't just say, oh, this is from a different culture because um, we'll end up just crossing out the whole Bible. I think we need to work really hard, though, at understanding what the Bible says with cultural awareness. This is um, what my next few slides are about. We need to work hard at reading God's Word, we, we know that the Bible is God's Word. This, you know, we, we've just done the Words for Life series. We know that God is good. He can be trusted. But His Word contains uh, timeless truths for people of all cultures. So there's a bit of a process I think we can work through. Um, we know that you know, Corinthians was written in the f- one particular culture. 
first century Greece. That's where Paul's from. That's where the Corinthians are from. We live in a different culture, 21st century Sydney. Um, there's things we love. There's things particular to us, things that feel normal to us. Um, but we need to sort of work through those things and discern what is God's timeless word saying. God's preserved parts of the Bible like this for our good. We've got to work hard at thinking, well, why? What, what is he saying to us? So we'll go on. I'll illustrate what I mean. Um, we see something that's said from a different culture. Uh, we think, what, what's going on here? The key, one of the keys is to examine the passage and ask, well, what reasons are given for what is said? Sometimes there's a cultural reason that's really specific to the circumstances, but other times there might be a more timeless reason where the author appeals to some uh, truth that has got nothing to do with Corinth, that sits outside um, you know, the time and place. And then when we find things like that, we've got to work at analysing and, and understanding what, why is this important? Why has Paul said this? What is the, the timeless, universal truth that uh, is, is behind Paul saying this? And then once you get to that, uh, well, you can see, well, how was that applied in culture one? And then our job is to think, well, how does... We read that, we interact with that, but we think, how does that principle apply in culture two, in our culture? Um, and this is actually what we're doing every time we read the Bible, whether you realise it or not, because we're from culture two, the Bible's from culture one, for example, and we're always reading it, trying to discern what is God saying to us. We're always doing this. We even did this in point one. You might not have realised it. Uh, there's this stuff about t- tongues and prophecy and the Corinthian gathering. It feels a bit different to us, from a different culture, um, he gives us a reason that's kind of specific to them. You know, um, tongues can't be understood. Prophecy can be understood. And we pushed into more timeless principles. Uh, intelligible words are better. Uh, build one another up. And we know from last week that this is all about love and how we love one another in our gatherings by building one another up. Um, and so, you know, we then take that and try and apply it to our setting, which is what we did. And then we come to even stranger um, sentences about women not speaking. Uh, And as I said, this this arouses our emotions. And for some people might be, um, you might feel really hurt by seeing those words like that. You might feel angry. Um, I I feel like that um, in some measure. And I'm a man. So if you're a woman here, you know, I'm not actually in your shoes. So I imagine it can be pretty tricky and, and, and be really hard to hear. But let's, let's think carefully about it. Um, on the one hand, it's good to know what's going on in our culture uh, that is in the background as we approach sentences like this. A few things to notice. Number one, compared to Corinth, first century Corinth, where the beneficiaries by and large, of the feminist movement, however you define it. There's so many wonderful things to have come out of that. As a, someone with a sister, a mother, I don't, I don't have daughters, but I've got female friends. I think in many respects, it's wonderful the way the feminist movement, you know, however you define it, it has brought about, has lessened sort of 
mistreatment or discrimination of women and has brought uh, equality where there's been inequality. That's, that's a wonderful thing in many respects. Um, however, it's a movement that has some other consequences which might not be so good. For example, uh, you might have noticed the way that the distinctions between men and women have been minimised and really blurred. So people don't like to think of, of men and women as being different. Uh, but they, they clearly are. So that's one thing. We, so we see uh, a sentence directed to women and not men. We think, oh, that, that doesn't feel right. A few other things about our culture. We, I think we're a society that tends to value people based on their function and their role rather than just the fact that they're human beings. So we think, who are the important special people? Are people with high-powered jobs and important roles. Um, but that's not the right way to value people. We value people according to the fact that they're made in God's image. And there is actually... Uh, people can be equal but different, and equal but have different roles. So that's another thing to keep in the back of our mind. And a third thing is just to say that, you know, we all have seen lots of men stuff it up. Men with power, whether individuals we know or in systemically, there's blokes with power that have stuffed things up. And so we see a sentence like this and it, it, it makes our, our blood boil. Um, the challenge for us, the challenge for us is not to be ruled by those emotions... Um, but to come back to the Bible and, and work hard at understanding it. Um, so let's, let's keep doing that. I think Paul gives us, uh, when he's talking about this, I think he gives us one reason which I'm quite comfortable saying is specific to their culture. That bit where he says what the women were doing was disgraceful. Um, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say that. I think there's something going on there about the local culture that um, Paul is acknowledging, because we would never say that. Um, what, what it is, what exactly they're doing, it's hard to know. I mean, none of us lived in first century Corinth, um, but I think that's something that's specific to the culture. However, he, he gives another reason that we want to notice. He, he says at one point, I'm saying this because the law also says it. And when he says that, he's pushing into a more timeless body of truth, the law. Now, as a Jew, uh, he's probably just using the word law to refer generally to the Old Testament or maybe, um, maybe the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, there's no actual law regulation in the Old Testament that says, you know, women can't speak in the public gatherings. I think he's being more general here. And when you weigh it all up and, and you think about Paul and all of Paul's writings seems like he's talking about Genesis 2. So Genesis 2, uh, that's when men and women are created. And we see that men were created first and then women. And right throughout the Bible, you see this pattern unfold where God tasks men with leading and, and um, men and husbands leading, women and wives sort of submitting and helping. In, in, in family life, in marriage, um, not... I wouldn't say in society at large necessarily, but certainly family life, marriage, and, and church as well um, to some extent. 
And then we get this other evidence from 1 Corinthians 11, a few chapters ago, where Paul does a similar thing. Remember, that was the bit about head coverings. Again, Paul's referring back to Genesis 2. He says, uh, what does he say? The man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. And then he applies that um, to the situation with head coverings. Um, and so we end up with this principle that's part of God's created order, that the job of men and husbands is to lead and, and protect and serve, and the job of women and wives uh, is to uh, follow, submit, help. Um, now, this isn't, this isn't a product of the fall. I don't think this is uh, something that's been created by sin. I think this is the way God in his wisdom and goodness has designed the world. Um, there's an order. There's an order in the way God has made us that needs to be expressed in life, um, especially in marriage and in our families and, I guess, in church as well um, in some measure. Now, we know there's nothing inherently wrong with order. We experience order in all kinds of spheres in life. You have principals and teachers in schools. Um, we don't think teachers are less valuable people than principals just by virtue of the fact that they're in a different role. There's nothing, there's nothing inherently wrong with submission because we do that in all kinds of situations as well. I submit to Neil because he, he's my boss. Um, teachers might submit to principals. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the principal is a more important person than the teacher or that Neil is more important than me. Uh, it's, there's a goodness to God's order which he's embedded in creation. And so that's the principle that Paul seems to be uh, using here. So our job, our tricky job, is to take that principle and apply it to our setting, you know, our, our gatherings. Um, and it's hard to do because there are significant differences between our time and the time in Corinth. So here's just a few thoughts. Maybe it might mean that wives uh, don't sort of undermine uh, their husbands in the public gathering. That seems to be what was happening in, in Corinth uh, with the weighing up of prophecy. Now, I'll, don't hit me, see me. I'm not saying that it's okay for men to criticise uh, women or husbands to criticise wives, I'm not saying that, but there's something about the, the husband-wife relationship that needs to be expressed in, uh, in public. Um, there's lots of people that aren't wives, uh, it makes it tricky for us uh, about how does, if Paul's especially thinking of wives, um, how does this work for other women, single women, uh, widows, maybe there's just a general reminder here for, for women to respect and, and defer to the male leaders when it comes to sort of, um, you know, teaching and, and spiritual, spiritual wisdom. Uh, that's a possibility. Um, another possibility is that if, if teaching up the front needs to be challenged in some way, there's a call there for the men to take initiative. Uh, maybe that's a possibility as well. I'm brainstorming here because there's, there's differences between Corinth and Janelli. Uh, but there's a principle that we need to uphold. Um, now, can I say, there's... Let me just issue a timely reminder um, to us all here. We know that human beings aren't valued according to what they can do, what, what role they have. Now, God 
has made us all in his image, man and woman. Uh, he calls all of us into his family, and Jesus died for all of us equally. Um, if you're a sister here, please don't let Satan take these words and uh, build it into a lie that says God doesn't value your contribution in church because that would be overstating it. Please don't let Satan uh, take hold of these words in your mind and heart and cause you to think that your church leaders and your brothers don't value your contribution in church. I think that would be um, a massive overstatement. Um, no, we, we love your contribution, uh, but there is a, an order and, and a, a pattern that we've got to try and uphold somehow. Um, and that's what this is about. Let me finish. And we come back to the chapter um, as a whole. Love says, build one another up with intelligible words and orderly meetings. And I think those principles play out in beautiful ways. Uh, I think they already uh, show themselves in beautiful ways amongst this gathering. Um, and it means we are privileged to be part of God's people. A community where um, people aren't ruled by self-interest, but love. A community where uh, people are encouraging and building one another up, rather than simply doing what's best for them. A community's gatherings where there's harmony and order. A community where one of the key markers of maturity is self-restraint and listening, rather than simply shouting over the top of one another. Isn't that different to the way the world works these days? We can be a part of a community where one of the, the key signs of maturity is not, you know, having our say at all costs, but exercising self-restraint and listening. That is a, that's a wonderful prospect. And so as we come to church, we've got a glorious opportunity to do spiritual good to other people. Our real, eternal, spiritual good to other people. Um, so why don't I pray that uh, we would take that opportunity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, help us to be people of love who seek to build one another up. And help us especially by giving us wisdom to understand these trickier parts of the Bible. Um, that uh, are hard to hear and hard to understand. Continue to give us wisdom to know what it means and what it says and give us grace and humility to um, uh, apply the Bible to ourselves and, and submit to it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.